Hey, thanks for tuning in to this Langefam bonus track. As I mentioned in the main episode with Michael Arad, he was kind enough to introduce me to several researchers at the Max Planck Institute in Nijmegen. But before we listen to what they have to tell us about their research, how about we start with a little story? The story of the piano in the basement. One day in late November, I was at lunch again with Charlotte, Mark, and his office mate, Edwin, who works on chimp behavior. Sometimes I hear music being played, piano music, Edwin said, but only after work hours. Where is there a piano, I asked. In the basement, they said. There's a basement? I hadn't known. Two days later, my oldest son came to the institute with me. There was a teacher's strike, and he had no school. On such days, usually we sat for a while in my office, the door closed, while I wrote. He watched videos or looked at photos of trains on my desktop computer to sketch. Then at 10.30, we wandered down to the canteen for a muffin. That day, I suggested we explore the basement, and he agreed. But as soon as we started down the dark staircase, he balked. He's been like this, hesitant to enter spaces that might look forbidden. There's no sign here, I said, no reason to avoid this. Plus, there's the piano they were talking about. I have to see the piano. I persuaded him further down. As soon as we entered the hallway, a light snapped on. We crept along the corridor and found an entrance to the library's lowest stack, which we'd explored from above during a previous visit. It's not the library, he insisted. It is. It's the same, I said. Magic bunny holes existed all over the Institute. Do people map out routes using the basement to avoid others they don't want to see? If they don't, they could. We rounded the corner, looked into an office, and saw Jan, the head janitor. He's jolly, bald, plain-talking, and friendly. Booming voice. Hi, Michael! He's the one responsible for all the physical systems. If it can be moved or can break, Jan is in charge of it. Don't take Jan for granted. The man has keys. We're checking out the basement, I said. I'd never been down here before. Well, let me show you some other things, he said. Well, now it's my turn to show you some other things that happen at MPI. Let's listen to Hans Rutkoboska, Mark Dingemanser, and Charlotte Horn. First up, Hans. Hi. 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 How are you? Hi. Nice to meet you. I'm Hi. Nice to meet you. Come join me. <coughs> it's much cooler down here, isn't it? It's quite it's pleasant, yeah. Upstairs. Especially compared to two floors up. <laughs> yeah. I've always been interested in, in speech, so not necessarily language per se, but rather yeah. the speech signal, the spoken signal. And, and most of my work is on speech perception, so how come... Um, I mean, you can understand me right now perfectly well, because mm. this is a quiet, quiet yeah. surrounding, right? There's no problem there. Uh-huh. Uh, but once we get into a situation where there's loud traffic, uh, or um, yeah. competing talkers in a bar, or Party, background yeah. music... Or, it's the worst. <laughs> uh, or even just a non-native speaker, right? Someone who, who produces noise inside the signal, inside the yeah. communicative signal itself. Um, still, we somehow cope, right? We don't have that much trouble in a bar, or... So, so uh, somehow we cop, and we do that much better than Google does, right? Yeah. And all these speech recognition softwares. I'm interested in speech perception, especially when it gets bad, right? When it gets uh, difficult. So, for instance, uh, one of the topics is, is very fast speech. Hmm. At some point, it breaks down, right? We can compress speech to a certain degree, make it really fast. Um, but at some point, it breaks down. Now, why does it break down? Hmm. 
at a particular rate, right? What what is it in the brain that that um, that fails? Then I can produce a s- simple sentence and then speed it up by two, and you have no yeah. problem, right? There's no acoustically. That's very very different. Right? Mm. If you just look at the signal, it's completely different. Yeah. But we understand the same words. If we compress it by three, you still can kind of somehow pick up the words. But somewhere along, you know, when you compress it by four or five, we lose that intelligibility, it becomes too fast. Now, why is that, right? So we look at how the brain processes fast speech, for instance. Hmm. Another topic is, uh, is disfluency. So um, communication can also get difficult when there's lots of ums or yeah. pauses or breakdowns or those kind of things. Uh-huh. Um, and somehow the brain has developed kind of a clever way of, of, of dealing with those. Mm-hmm. So we also, we've also done some research into, um, for instance, how, how the brain processes uh, online, right? So we use, for instance, eye tracking research, yeah. where we show pictures, um, and we then present disfluent speech and see how that influences how people interpret the speech, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the eyes follow what you think is going to come up. It's a picture of, say, um, a sewing machine, something really low frequent, right? Okay. Something that we don't see every day. <laughs> yeah. Spinning wheel, you know, very low frequency <laughs> items. And high frequency items, so cars, bikes, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, you see two pictures on the screen, that's it. And then you hear a sentence. Now click on the... Um, it's not going to be the hand, right? Yeah. <laughs> because the high frequency items is not going to be difficult to name. Mm. So somehow we use those ums to already predict that it's going to be the difficult item uh, well before we hear the S of sewing machine or yeah. we hear the S and the P of spinning wheel or something like that, right? So it's, it's, an, it's evidence of that, that we actively use these kind of metacognitive, yeah. not metacognitive, but metalinguistic cues, these, these performance cues. Um doesn't mean anything. But nevertheless, but maybe listeners, it does, yeah. listeners can cleverly use those yeah. symptoms of, of speech production in, in perception. Speech rate thing, we also use neurobiological methods. Hmm. We, we've used EEG and MEG, um, which is uh, measuring basically uh, brain activity right, at a given moment in time. And hmm. that has a very, very um, small temporal resolution. Very good temporal resolution, so you can measure every millisecond what's going on in the brain. Wow! Yeah. And what we've been showing is that people actually track the rate of speech. So if we take a normal speech signal that has, I don't know, I say five syllables every second, then we actually see in the brain a kind mm. of a five beats a second response really? as well. Yeah. So it's like the brain adjusts to what you hear. Mm. Right? Now, if you compress that by two, you end up with ten beats a second and you, you again see the 10 beats a second back in the brain yeah. but once it gets too fast so when we compress it by three or four or five we lose that that correlation between brain and speech hmm. basically so it's like the brain tries to keep up hmm. right <laughs> with the signal as it comes in um, but somewhere it breaks down and um, the moment it breaks down has been said to be uh, uh, relevant for the kind of brain waves that are in the brain so uh, yeah the edges around 10 hertz right everything below 10 hertz is mm. trackable syllable rates below 10 hertz and you'll find that languages all around the world will have syllable rates below 10 hertz <laughs> they do yeah and okay. um, um, one reason might be right given all this neuro neuro stuff that the brain has been designed 
to track rhythms within this range mm. and not outside the range. Yeah. And therefore, languages have evolved to be, you know, within that range. So it's like you can kind of fool the brain to, yeah. <laughs> as long as you follow its rules, mm. you can, you can uh, help it to understand speech. Okay. And ideally, that's where you want to go, right? That's where yeah. you want to go for, I don't know, hearing people with hearing aids, uh, uh-huh. elderly people who lose some of their hearing acuity, um, uh, cochlear implants. That's ideally where you want to go. Understanding how speech perception works, mm. what are the constraints that the brain, for instance, imposes, or the ears, or whatever. Mm. And if we know, if we can understand that, then we can apply it, right? So it's in in the end, it's of course it's fundamental research, but um, it's it's driven by this by this idea of wanting to to understand in order to be able to then tweak mm. perception, right? All these languages, I mean, they're all spoken languages, so we all speak with our mouths, right? And our mouths constrain how we speak. We can only speak so fast. We, yeah. can't, we can't speak at 10 hertz, right? So therefore, we also don't find that that much. Mm. But it looks fairly consistent. Is that yeah. true, or is that just the layman looking? And that's, that's yeah, okay. the point, yeah, that across all languages, you know, this is just Dutch, but the, the theory is, the suggestion is that this is... General across the board, yeah. simply because this is how our, our jaws work, and maybe even how our brains work. Right, our brains can't keep up with yeah. ten hertz. So why would you speak above ten hertz? Because sometimes there's this perception, at least, that some languages are quicker yeah. than yeah. others. Yeah. You know, like Spanish, for yeah. example, would be the typical example. Yeah, yeah, and they sound so quick, but apparently yeah. that may just be individual perception. That might that's clearly a perception issue because yeah. if you do the math, right? If you do if you do look at the acoustics, yeah. the signals itself they're very comparable. It checks out. There's also stuff on speech rate where it's all it's all within the same range, um, mm. but of course perception deviates from merely objectively observing the world. Right? If mm. we listen to Spanish, we, for instance, we can't pick up the sounds right because they they might have sounds that we don't use. Mm. We uh, don't hear the word boundaries. I mean, if you look at the speech signal, there's no pauses if we between don't know words, Spanish. right? Yeah, okay. oh. So it's very difficult to pick out the words simply because we don't know where they end. <laughs> we just get a blur of sound mm. and it's just like, what? <laughs> so perceptually, that sounds a lot faster. And it's, it's been called the gabbling foreigner illusion, right? So oh, yeah. <laughs> this foreigner comes in, some Japanese, very familiar. Or, yeah. Um, and everybody has this intuition that yeah that yeah. is fast, but of course that can't hold because a Spanish person will think Dutch is fast, right? Because so, it's a foreign language. Exactly. Yeah. So oh. it, yeah, it, it can't be in the acoustics. It's a clearly a perceptual. Yeah. What that what that speech modulation curve also tells me is that it's probably very very unlikely that someone who's an interpreter would have to be dealing with or resolving differences in modulation rates yeah. between their two languages, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But that's, that's mere acoustics, right? That's just listening to sound. Of course, there's much more when it comes to interpreting mm. because you also have to understand the sound, pick out the words, make sentences in your mind, understand them, and then go all the way back. Right? Mm. <laughs> From that meaning, construct a sentence in a different language. So, um, But it looks, from your research, like there's probably almost no difference between a professional language user like an interpreter let's say and a normal person because there are some kind of physical limitations to the rate that you can in terms of speech rate sort of tolerate yeah yeah, yeah of course there's a range right yeah so because i would have said maybe you know professional language user who's more who has more training maybe that makes a difference but maybe it, maybe it doesn't yeah. i don't know 
Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, yeah. it's only a range. Right? I'm just saying that right. extremely fast or extremely mm. slow won't happen. And uh, the reasons might be the jaw or might be the brain, right? Uh, but within that, there's still considerable variation, of course, right? If we are proficient speakers of a language, we're mu much faster than non-native speakers. Yep. And there's individual variation in, in, in people who are just generally slow and all mm. kind of things. So um, there's still, of course, considerable variation. Nevertheless, that variation is constrained, right? Mm. It doesn't go up to 15 hertz. It doesn't... So yeah. there, there are boundaries, and that's that's what we try to to pinpoint, right? To to limit the variability, <laughs> because there's yeah. plenty of variation. Yeah. A few floors up is Mark Dingemanser. Mark, Hello. Happy to meet Alex. Alex. Hey, Mark. nice to meet you. Mark, How are nice you? to meet you. I'm going to step out and get some coffee. Okay, <laughs> sure. So there are two main strands to my work. Um, and the one that Michael mentioned, I think, is the one to do with... He mentioned this little word, huh? Yeah. Uh, that's the word that you use when you didn't quite catch what somebody said. Right? Or at least it's one of the ways in which you can do that. It's the most informal way hmm. and the most uh, widely used way. Um, but the larger research program is uh, more broadly about how we manage to communicate at all, you know, against overwhelming odds. That so much can go wrong and goes wrong yeah. all the time mm. uh, that it's kind of a miracle that we manage to you know be able to talk somehow even uh, if you speak the same language yes indeed yeah. I mean uh, that's even yeah. even without you know thinking about all the formidable issues of different languages mm. um, you know but this is just about you know, using a word that you that the other doesn't quite know or using a name that has multiple possible reference uh, but also communicating in noise, of course, you know, traffic passing by, all sorts of other trouble, um, overlapping. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there are very many ways in which things can go wrong. And what's so interesting about human language, as opposed to many other animal communication systems, is we actually have pretty good ways to deal with that. Mm. Uh, we can do some of the same things that other animals also do. This is one of my interests, actually, you know, animal communication and how language relates to that. Yeah. You know, but animals' options are limited. Uh, so what they can do is basically just keep repeating what they did until they get some form of success. Yeah. Or give up. Or not. That's it. <laughs> no. That's okay. it. And we, I mean, we can do that too, but fortunately mm. we can do more. Mm. And so our research program into what we call repair was precisely aimed at trying to find out how exactly we solve these kinds of breakdowns. Mm. Um, and so uh, in the course of that, we discovered a couple interesting things. One of which was this little word, huh, which uh, we found to be basically universal in spoken languages. Oh, right. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was totally unexpected for yeah. us as linguists. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it doesn't make sense at all that, yeah. you know, in unrelated languages you would have a word yeah. with a similar kind of function that also has a similar kind of sound. Mm. It doesn't work like that normally, as you as an interpreter well know. Yeah, of yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even words like you know, when you hurt yourself, even those are a little bit different, yeah. or sometimes very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, well, this, this word is, I mean, it's, it's a nuanced story in the sense that um, languages do have their own version of this word, mm. but I can put it like this. Every spoken language that we've been able to check and that anybody else has been able to check has a simple monosyllable that you can, uh, with questioning intonation, that mm. you can use to ask the other to repeat what they just said. Um, and so in some languages it might sound like, hä? That's Dutch, my yeah. native language. 
I think German has a German is very similar version of yeah uh -huh. uh, now in English of course it sounds a little more nasalized and with a less clear fricative at the beginning so you don't quite go ahead but more like huh um, in Spanish the vowel is slightly different so mm. you go e. Uh, but still, it's this monosyllable with questioning intonation in all of those languages. So it's never in another part of the vowel space. You know, if you mm. think about it as, you know, um, one, you know, you can go e or u or a, and then in this region there would be e and o and so on. It's mm. always in that region. It's never right. e or u, huh. which you know, there's no particular reason <laughs> that uh, that it couldn't be, but it so happens never to be like that. Hmm. Uh, so that was our first discovery and one of the most interesting ones to do with, you know, how people uh, solve this universal problem. And the differences that you've seen between languages are linked to phonology, for example. Exactly. So a, yeah. a Spaniard would be hard pressed to pronounce a H, yeah. like a uh, H, yeah, as we pronounce exactly. it. Yeah. So, but that, those are the, the main differences. And yeah, the only ones, as far yeah. as we can tell. So basically, what you can say is this is a word that it's always in that same part of the possibility space, and it adjusts slightly within that space to the phonology of the language. Mm -hmm. That's it. Um, it never, you know, there is um, no example that we know of where the vowel goes beyond that little a or a yeah. uh, uh, sound, for instance. And it so happens, of course, that most languages do have a vowel somewhere there. And then you pick it. That's yeah. basically how it works. Mm -hmm. um, and the basic... The reason that we think this is, is what we call convergent cultural evolution. We think that across the world, you know, this is such a common communicative need that um, languages converge to, this, to find the same solution, essentially, to that need. Mm. Um, and the need is not just, I, you know, it's not just about, uh, can I get you to say again what you just said? But it, we're under some pressure. Hmm. In, in conversation, um, w you know, we take turns and we do so at quite an amazing pace. We do so hmm. very quickly, normally. And we also know that when we're a bit slower, that that invites all sorts of implicatures. So, you know, if you, you know, <laughs> ask me what I'm doing tonight and hmm. I'm slow to reply, <laughs> yeah. you already know that this yeah. is going to be um, busy or whatever. It's the pragmatics of... Exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 Now, so sure. that pressure is always there. Yeah. Uh, because it's always there, when we didn't quite catch what the other one said in the first place, we need some quick way of indicating that. Hmm. And that's precisely what this little word gives you. So it's basically the simplest possible question word. It's really easy to plan. Yeah. You basically just have to... Um, uh, uh, leave your mouth open, yeah. uh, emit a little air, uh, and you know, make it a syllable uh, with a questioning intonation, and sure. off you go. So, mm. yeah. And so basically, what you're saying is that this was a, con a conversion, I think you said, of languages. Yeah. This is not just some leftover from an ancient proto language. Well, so that's the thing that we are at present, of course, not able to say. It's it, difficult it could to, be. to say. Probably, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in uh. fact, you know, when, when the paper came out, some newspapers with writing about it said, oh, this is the oldest word, it's the most ancient word, it's <laughs> you know, the only word that we still have left from our... And it's mm. just, we can't say anything about that. So it could mm. be that. Um, but it could also be uh, that languages independently just converge on that same option. Um, and one reason to think that it's at least partly that second possibility is that we can now see this happening. So Danish is an excellent example. Oh, yeah. So in Danish you do have something like mm. Danish is of course you know known as the language that minimizes everything. You know. yes. All the vowels smudged together and so on. Oh yes. Uh, so you know it makes kind of sense that <laughs> what they have in the way of this interjection would be just a nasal like mm. Mm. But they also have another form which they write with four letters as age 
V-A-D. So, so it's it's cognate with the Germanic what? Yeah. Um, um, and it sounds nothing like it. It sounds yeah. like this. Huh? So Danish. So there's <laughs> tiny, there's a tiny bit of labial, uh, labial dental closure yeah. there, which you know, if you really want, you can hear it as, uh, uh, but it doesn't, you know, if you listen to Dane speaking casually, it just like sounds like, uh. yeah. Now what's interesting there is that it seems that the way I look at it hmm. is this is the case of the question word in Danish, you know, the one that we know from other Germanic languages to be like what yeah. or was and so on. That question word getting caught up in this vortex of sort of selective pressure is wanting this interjection to be minimal yeah. and you know it, it, Super it's efficient. being pulled into yeah. that same part of the possibility space where the other interjections of all the other languages already are yeah so that's my reason for thinking it's not just that we are stuck with the oldest word but even mm. if we try to use a new word it, it ends up getting pulled towards that same part of okay. the space transcribed text is that what you use only transcribed audio recordings of informal conversations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can never ask somebody about these things because they, you know, you can't trust people's intuition. I can't trust my own intuitions yeah. about this because these things are so much below our awareness. You know, ask anybody about um, whether they think uh, or um is a word or whether they think huh is a word and they'll say, nah, nah, these are just sounds and I don't use them anyway because they're impolite and so on. Yeah, Whereas mm. record them in an everyday conversation with their friends and you see them or hear them using these words all the time. So that's what we yeah. did. We made recordings in field sites all over the world and traced. We didn't go listening for these sounds in particular. We instead looked for situations in which things in which you can simply see things going wrong so where uh, you know you say something and then the other person um, does something whatever it is uh, and then following that something you do your thing again so mm. you know you repeat yourself in response to something that the other person did yeah now having these two cases of you speaking and in between a person doing something else, mm. we can look at all of the cases where that person does something and we can say, these are all cases that somehow elicit repetition from you. So these, those are like what we call repair initiations. Those are cases where yeah. I ask you for clarification and then we can do a typology. We can compare them across languages. That's how we found that one of the things you can reliably do in all those corpora of all those languages is use this simple syllable mm. to elicit a repetition. Uh, I would say speech. I would say okay. even it's a word. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some people yeah. think it's not. But it's I just don't. a sound. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make yeah. sense to me to, to say it's just a sound because you have to learn it. Uh, we found that it's not very common. Hmm. Um, and you mean the, the polite forms are yeah, not very common? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So even in the most, you know, even in English uh, conversations or, you know, the other Western languages that we had in our sample, hmm. we know that these forms exist. Hmm. Um, but in informal conversations, they are highly infrequent. Uh, instead, what you find is that when there are larger social asymmetries or when there are special you know, work situations or more formal situations, yeah. that's when these things get mobilized. Um, but in, in informal interaction, in the form that we use language most, the, these polite forms are, are least frequent. Mm. Uh, but they're there. Uh, but not in all languages, interestingly. What's so nice about huh? is it's extremely efficient. So I put very low demands on your time by using it. Uh, and it's a very efficient way of solving that problem. Mm. So in a way, it's, you know, it's a good use of our time if I use the most efficient way that's available. Yeah. What you do when you're being polite is you choose to convert some of the time that you might want to 
you know, you know, pay to efficiency. You can mm. choose to convert it to politeness to say, to show that, you know, I'm being, I'm doing, you know, more work essentially to yeah. uh, to be more polite. Um, um. Yeah, there you go. Here I go. Mike, Mike wrote a book about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's another cool thing that we found was which was that in all languages, um, you can do something special with that word to signify that you're doing something special with the meaning. So, okay. in particular, what you can do is you can make it more exaggerated, so to say. So you can go, huh? Yeah. Um, to signify that now it's not just that I didn't hear you. In fact, I heard you quite well, perfectly fine. Yeah. But I'm doing surprise, in a way. Mm. I'm acting surprised. And so I invite you now not to repeat it, but just to say, yeah, isn't that you know, amazing? Mm. And so on. And, you know, we know that use from American English and from Dutch, you know, it's been documented in a few Western languages. Okay. But it's, it's kind of cool that we've found that in all of the languages in our sample. So no matter where you are, you can do the same thing. You exaggerate the form to, in a way, exaggerate the meaning. And, you know, that, that same kind of uh, operation on the form to get a particular meaning hmm. is available in all those languages. So there are several cues that in simple dyadic interactions that people use. Uh, I'm sure you know all of them. Uh, the most obvious one is syntax. Does it sound like it's syntactically complete? Mm -hmm. um, but that's never, you know, a, a single cue. That the, uh, the thing is that these cues are always cumulative. Mm -hmm. So usually a single cue isn't enough. So complete syntax in itself is just one sort of point in favor of this may be a possible place mm -hmm. for a turn transition. So, for example, when it's a question, you would go up. But yeah, then yeah. But that, could, that could be a second question into, after yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But that, that would be two cues already in a way. You, you okay. can tell something from the syntax. You know, the word order in an English question is different from in a statement. So that's one cue. Mm -hmm. The other cue is intonation. Does it indeed go up? Then, yeah. okay, more evidence it's a question and therefore now a response is uh, required. Um, and then there are things like, and I'm wondering whether this holds up in, in, in this scenario, and I don't think fully, there are things like gaze patterns, which are actually hugely important. So what mm -hmm. people do in dyadic interaction is when they um, are close to finishing their turn, and it is something like a question mm -hmm. where you know the next speaker is obviously selected as next speaker, then yeah. they'll turn their gaze to that speaker. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, you know, this is my cue, and mm. now I go. And, you know, if, if that lines up with the syntax and the intonation and other available cues, then, you know, clearly you can go. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering how much of that is available in this, because, you know, essentially all of the turns are pulled apart in this four-person scenario, certainly. Um, so is let's let's keep with Trump and Putin just because it's easy. So <laughs> is Trump actually when asking his question and nearing the end of it, is he gonna look at Putin and uh, if he is, then that is the cue for the interpreter too to say okay now, mm. now I know it's basically you know the end of the turn and so I can start translating it. Well, this was uh, you know a great. A short conversation. Great to <laughs> yeah. talk about your work and tell a little bit about my work and uh, you know lots of lots of follow up questions. <laughs> yeah, well, same both, here. Both of you are remaining in Europe, so I encourage you to. Yeah, indeed. To, yeah, we might actually do touch. that. Yeah. 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 Great. One person that Michael worked closely with was Charlotte Horn, then the public outreach officer at MPI, and a dyed-in-the-wool Dutch woman. A couple of years ago, she spent seven months living in New York City. She worked as a bike courier, a job she got as soon as she arrived. 
How did you think you could work as a courier if you didn't know the city, I asked. She shrugged. I'm Dutch. Dutch people figure if it involves a bike, they can do it. Charlotte and I spent a lot of time together. Actually, on the first day, the first day that I was here, it's nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> You're here! <laughs> I am the, doing PR and communications for the Institute. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm not a researcher. And were you the one who brought Michael on board? Well, that was uh, Simon Fisher. Yeah. Who's the director here? And um, he. Just say yes. Yes. Just say yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I did that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. No. So um, yes, yes, no. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, obviously we, yeah, we or we worked together mm. uh, just back and forth a little bit with some. Um, Outreach things or mm. um, press releases or stories or that kind of thing. Yeah. And your background is in communication or in, in science as well? Neurobiology. Neurobiology, um, yeah. Yeah. And you t then decided at some point that you're more interested in the communication aspect of the yeah, work? Yeah, translating of, of the work, yeah. 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 Trans translating as in making it... Understandable. <laughs> Understandable or approach. Not a different to. language. No, yeah. Sorry. But, yeah. It, but it's a, it is a way of yeah, translation. Yeah, 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 yeah. In it. yeah. yeah. Well, but also yeah. you do work in both English and in Dutch. I do. Um, mm -hmm. I work also in German, but that's because mm -hmm. our the Max Planck Gesellschaft um, obviously uh, is German. Mm -hmm. And they communicate all their work in German. Um, Only in German? or Mostly. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's quite interesting. Because I started working in it, and there was no one before that did communication, so I was found a lot, which was really great mm. by a lot of people. But um, it was a very busy job, so I just got mm. all of these requests, like we have this, this I is imagine, cool, yeah. this is cool, this is cool, and so I went in a lot indeed and talked to people, and I saw the experiments. And um, at some point, yeah, you and this is what we spoke about as well. Like, what is the institute actually doing, right? Yeah. What is it's actually the only place in the world where we do only um, language research all in one building yeah. on so many levels and um, that is sort of your selling point but there's a lot of really interesting work here obviously so yeah um, I was just saying to Michael you could pop into any office and you could have a, a three-hour yeah. conversation which would be fascinating <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah hmm. people are so driven and so um, open and um, yeah I should yeah. have done that actually just had like a, a random number generator. Yeah. <laughs> and just on the wheel every day. Go like, well, let's see what's happening in yeah, 217. Yeah yeah. 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 yeah, because even if you're here for a year, you, you don't get to meet everyone necessarily. No, I mean, there's just, there's so much. You realize at the beginning, like, oh my God, I'm in a candy store. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. by November, you go, I... So tired of candy. Too much candy. I can't yeah. eat any more candy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you yeah. got to step back and digest it a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Yeah.